Chapter 23, A History of California, the American Period, by Robert Glass Cleland. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 23, The First Decade of Politics. During the decade immediately following the establishment of state government in California, politics never attained a very high level. Only a lukewarm interest was taken in national affairs, except as an action of Congress or the President promised to affect some matter of local concern. Even in the workings of their own state government, the people showed such little interest that political control passed almost entirely out of their keeping into the hands of a few skillful, energetic men whose bitter rivalry for control of party machinery added an exciting, though unedifying, element to the otherwise monotonous course of local politics. Curiously enough, the first California legislature had met, performed its duties, and adjourned almost a year before California became a state. The capital had temporarily been fixed at San Jose by the Constitutional Convention, and here the two houses met on December 15, 1849, with 16 members in the Senate and 36 in the Assembly. Footnote. Each legislator received $16 a day during the session, with an allowance of the same amount for every 20 miles traveled to and from the state capital. In footnote. The chief work of this legislature consisted in drafting a code of laws, providing revenue to meet the government's immediate needs, and electing William Gwynne and John C. Fremont to the United States Senate. The body also attained a certain unique position in the state's history as the Legislature of a Thousand Drinks a name which owed its origin, so it is said, to the oft-repeated motion of Senator Thomas J. Green, late of Texas, to adjourn and take a thousand drinks. The chief issues in state politics after the government was in actual operation included the location of a permanent capital, a conflict of interest between the mining counties on the one hand and the agricultural and commercial sections on the other, the grievances of the South against the North, especially in connection with the levying of taxes, appointments to office, and apportionment of public funds, the question of state aid for stage and immigrant roads across the mountains, the sale of waterfront lots in San Francisco, the difficulty of enforcing law, and the protection of frontier counties from Indian depredations. The permanent location of the state capital caused considerable stir both in the legislature and among the rival cities contesting for the prize. San Jose and Monterey were the best known of these, but two as yet in embryo cities also offered their appeal. One of these, called by its sponsors New York on the Pacific, made up in name what it lacked in size. The other, like the ancient city of Nehemiah, was large and great, but the people were few and the houses not yet builded. The site of this second prospective capital was a tract of land on the Straits of Carquines belonging to General Vallejo. The latter offered to donate 156 acres to the state for public purposes and within two years provide $370,000 in cash for the erection of buildings if the capital should be located on the proposed grant. A popular election authorized the change from San Jose to Vallejo, as the new site was called, 
and after a good deal of wrangling and some further offers from Vallejo, the legislature accepted the general's proposal. When the legislature came together in January 1852, however, some six months after Vallejo had agreed to provide proper accommodations for its sessions and living quarters for its members, they found that none of these things had been done. Nor was Vallejo able to live up to the other obligations he had undertaken. So the state government, after much confusion, departed bag and baggage from the Carcanez metropolis to Sacramento. It was not until 1854, however, that this city was made the permanent capital. When it became known that the government proposed to move to Sacramento, the people of that city chartered a river steamer, the Empire, to convey the members of the legislature to the new scene of their labors. The departure from Viejo was thus described by a humorous and disrespectful correspondent of one of the contemporary newspapers. Quote, Bright and early, therefore, the next day, the whole town was in commotion. Carpets were torn up from the floor, Stoves and the long stovepipes came down on the run. The china chairs were tumbled in a heap out of the state house and carried in homogeneous masses on men's heads down to the wharf. The barkeepers, finding their occupation was gone, decided to stick by the legislature as their only safeguard, and decanters and tumblers, bars and bar fixtures, stout and bitters, silver twirlers, and champagne baskets went pell-mell into the confusion and down aboard the boat mixed in with the legislatures, judges, and private gentlemen who merely came along to see what the two houses were doing. The barber put his razor, his indiscriminate hairbrush, and his supply of one towel into his pocket, shouldered his chair, and marched down to the empire also. Here and there, only, was a long face marking some spectator who was gazing bewildered in the turmoil and saying to himself, Fallen is Vallejo, Vallejo the Magnificent. While in the midst of the confusion, the shrill notes of the washerwoman were heard, who was hurling elegant epithets against everything in general, the gay deceivers of the legislature in particular, and now and then interlarding her remarks with moral reflections touching unpaid bills, etc. End quote. The rivalry between the mining and agricultural districts of the state was a far more serious affair than the question of the location of the capital. The friction, indeed, which arose out of this conflict of interests, especially that created by the question of taxation, was largely responsible for the frequent efforts at state division attempted during this period. For a while, San Francisco and other non-mining sections in the North had in some degree the same grievances as the South, yet the latter suffered far more keenly from the unjust burdens of taxation and the unequal distribution of state favors. Even as early as the Constitutional Convention, a group of Southern delegates had favored state division and sought the establishment of a territorial government for the counties they represented. In doing this, they were actuated largely by the fear that the South, with its relatively scant population and its large land holdings, would be compelled, if united with the North, to bear a disproportionate share of the state's financial burden, while having but little voice in its government or share in its political rewards. This fear, fed also in some degree by the traditional antipathy of South to North and inherited from the old days of Mexican control, found ample justification as the state government got underway. 
in Governor MacDougall's annual message of January 7, 1852, he pointed out that taxation throughout the state was in no sense proportionate either to population or to representation in the legislature. The six southern counties, with a population of approximately 6,000, annually paid to the state $42,000 in taxes on real estate and personal property. The 12 counties chiefly devoted to mining, which represented 120,000 persons, escaped with only $21,000. In poll taxes, the southern counties contributed nearly $4,000 to the state treasury. The mining counties, though assessed over $50,000 under this form of tax, actually paid only 3500 Yet the southern counties, which combined, paid twice the taxes of the mining sections, had only 12 representatives in the legislature, while the mountain counties sent 44. Figures of a similar nature were compiled from time to time by southern newspapers for the benefit of their already disgruntled constituents, and as a protest against the manifest injustice of the tax and representative apportionments. Quote, the overwhelming influence of the North in the legislature is seen in every act which has been passed within two years, said one Los Angeles newspaper in 1851. The northern counties are engaged almost entirely in mining and contain very little land liable to taxation. As a consequence, the burdens of taxation fall principally upon the South, burdens which our people are poorly able to bear, end quote. Another southern paper declared that the injustice, quote, worked by this unequal apportionment will account for the almost unanimous feeling of the southern people in favor of a separation from the north and the establishment of a territorial government, End quote. Again, the star sarcastically remarked that the legislature at Sacramento never gave a thought to the insignificant cow counties of the south until it became necessary to raise additional revenue for state purposes. Nor was the dissatisfaction confined to the question of taxation and representation alone. The non-mining sections, north as well as south, were united in the feeling that the mining population and their representatives at the capital were ignorant of the state's needs and lacked interest in its welfare. Quote, they make laws for their own government said the Daily Alta in speaking of the miners, and in all things live, move, and almost think separately and apart, as though no bond of connection or sympathy existed between their interests and those of the commercial cities and other sources of wealth in our infant state. But while the non-mining counties in the north felt in some degree the injustice of these matters, they at least were able to secure sufficient benefits from the state in the form of appropriations, special legislation, and appointments to public office to offset whatever inequalities they complained of. And as time went on, their growth in population enabled them also to obtain a fair degree of equality of representation with the mining counties. The South, however, found no such compensation for its grievances and for at least a decade continued the agitation for a division of the state. In 1851, this movement reached such serious proportions that a convention to divide the state of California was summoned to meet in Los Angeles on November 10th. The call to this convention summed up the viewpoint of the South thus, quote, 
whatever of good the experiment of a state government may have otherwise led to in california for us of the southern counties it has proved only a splendid failure the bitter fruits of it no county has tasted more keenly than los angeles with all her immense and varied natural resources her political social and pecuniary condition at this moment is deplorable in the extreme her industry paralyzed under the insupportable burden of taxation her port almost forsaken by commerce her surplus products of no value on account of the enormous price of freights her capital flying to other climes a sense of utter insecurity of property pervading all classes and everything tending to increase and fasten upon her in the guise of legislation a state of actual oppression a prey to the incessant indian depredations from without and destitute of internal protection for our lives and property under laws as applicable to our wants and the character of the population and with all the continued ruinous taxation impending over us our future is gloomy indeed as a community if we shall fail in this appeal to our brethren of the north for the only redress consonant with our mutual interests a separation friendly and peaceful but still complete leaving the north and south to fulfill their grand destinies under systems of laws suited to each the signers of this document were augustine olivera pio pico benjamin hayes j lancaster brent louis granger john o wheeler jose antonio carrillo though the movement of eighteen fifty one accomplished no practical end the southern counties continued in a desultory fashion to talk of state division until eighteen fifty nine the failure of the government at sacramento to check the lawlessness and crime everywhere so prevalent in the state or to provide any adequate defense for the exposed communities of the south against indian frays added to the irritation and discontent engendered by other grievances some southern residents may also have cherished the faint hope of establishing a pro-slave territory if the state should be divided but the force of this motive was of minor significance if indeed it ever had any real existence by eighteen fifty nine conditions seemed favorable for the south to accomplish its long-cherished purpose a bill proposing state division was presented by andreas pico in the legislature and on april eighteenth that body gave its consent to the formation of a separate government for the five counties of san luis obispo santa barbara los angeles san diego san bernardino and a part of buena vista these were to be erected into a territory called the territory of the colorado or by some other name the citizens might select but in order to become effective it was necessary for the proposed measure to receive a two-thirds vote in the counties affected as well as the sanction of congress as the last requirement had not been met before the civil war broke out the measure died aborting during this decade unfortunately for the later history of the state political morality was so lax and legislative standards so low that inefficiency and corruption became a sort of traditional heritage of the california legislature for many years to come the details of individual cases of graft and dishonesty of seventy years standing are of no great significance today 
but this early surrender of the state to those who sought only personal profit or advantage from political control set an unfortunate precedent whose consequences later decades had difficulty in escaping many of the newspapers were outspoken enough in their criticisms of the government during these years but little good seems to have come from such attacks the legislature of eighteen fifty one to cite a random example was spoken of by one of the san francisco papers an infamous ignorant drunken rowdy perjured and traitorous body of men the daily alta californian an organ of the independence rejoiced that the legislature of eighteen fifty two would rectify the evil done by its predecessors and quote, rescue the state from the labyrinth of imbecility vagueness and iniquity into which it is strayed with scarcely a clue by which to retrace its erring steps or life and strength enough to vindicate its honor and punish those who have shamelessly abused its confidence before many days however according to the same writer the new body gave unmistakable evidence of following the old system of combinations arrangements pledges promises log-rolling scheming and swapping of votes which had characterized its predecessor these charges were doubtless exaggerated but trustworthy records not only of these two sessions but of nearly all other meetings of the legislature during the decade testified to the low political standards at the time federal issues figured but little in the state's politics though parties were organized along national lines and voters nominally cast their ballots as whigs know-nothings or democrats depending chiefly on their previous party affiliations east of the mountains there was also a small group of independents who occasionally held the balance of power between the regular parties but while this group could sometimes determine the choice of rival candidates it was rarely of sufficient importance or well enough organized to fill state or national offices with its own men the regular parties were under a machine control that recognized no shadow of popular responsibility the democratic party especially which dominated the state during all but a year or two of the decade when the know-nothings held a brief supremacy was led by a group of shrewd dictators who regarded the state as a sort of private preserve for their own political advantage the struggle for supremacy among these self-constituted leaders furnished the chief element of excitement in state politics until the civil war and it culminated in the bitter feud between broderick and gwynne which disrupted the democratic party and prepared the way for republican control William M. Gwynne was a Tennessean by birth, a physician by education, and a politician by instinct and deliberate choice. His early career had been determined very largely by his close association with Andrew Jackson, who, whatever may have been his faults, seldom neglected to advance the political interests of personal friends. Gwynne, accordingly, had acquired a certain reputation in Tennessee and Mississippi before the close of the Polk administration. But when the gold rush started, he set out for California, resolved to assume the leadership of politics in the new state and secure a seat in the United States Senate. Gwynne's ambitions were quickly realized, for in the first legislative session after the adoption of the Constitution, in the framing of which he had played a prominent part, he was elected to the United States Senate for the full term of six years. 
as the most conspicuous of california's representatives at washington Gwynne served his state with more than ordinary success and at home built up a constituency that seemed to render his position permanently secure his supremacy however did not long go unchallenged david c broderick of new york son of an irish stonemason to which trade he himself had been apprenticed as a boy reached california shortly before Gwynne's election to the senate and began at once to organize a rival political machine broderick like Gwynne, came to california with the purpose of realizing certain definite political ambitions like Gwynne, too he was already trained in practical politics before he reached the pacific but his education along this line had been very different from that of his southern opponent for while Gwynne represented the traditions and practices of the democrats of the southwest broderick had learned his art in the shrewdest of all political schools the tammany organization of new york to the training thus acquired he added a native aptitude for controlling men an aggressive determination and a contemptuous disregard for the methods and traditions of the older school of politics in the rivalry between these two men the bitterest and most intense in the history of the state Gwynne found his chief support among the southern and western democrats in california his followers were commonly dubbed the chivalry wing or more popularly the shivs and were supposed to hold aristocratic ideals of government as opposed to the more democratic conception of broderick supporters most of whom were men of northern extraction Gwynne's followers were also charged with pro-slavery views and as Gwynne himself has frequently been styled the arch-champion of the slave-holding interests in california the Gwynne broderick fight is often explained as a contest between the pro-slavery and the anti-slavery forces of the state as a matter of fact however the issue was not so much one of principle as of personal ambition and neither Gwynne's attitude on the negro question nor broderick's much affected it either way Gwynne's chief advantage aside from his reputation and established leadership in state affairs lay in his monopoly of federal patronage and his control because of this of a very effective political machine in which federal office holders played an important part broderick on the contrary though almost shut off from this source of influence succeeded in building up a powerful following both through the organization of municipal politics in san francisco and sacramento and by the adroit use of state patronage and the manipulation of nominating conventions for state offices one of the most notable encounters in the struggle for supremacy between these two men came in the legislature of 1854. Normally, the election of United States Senator was not due until the session of 1855, but Broderick, thinking he controlled the situation, sought to force the legislature then in session to proceed with the election. This plan almost succeeded, but after a bitter and at times an apparently losing fight, the Gwynne faction finally defeated the maneuver and deferred the election until its regular time. In the contest, it is needless to remark, both sides resorted to every means, legal and illegal, at their command, and the money spent to influence the legislative vote ran far ahead of anything the state had ever known before. The bitterness engendered by this fight naturally led to a widening of the breach in the Democratic Party. The next state convention, which met in Sacramento, broke up in confusion, 
and for a time, since most of the delegates were armed, it looked as though a pitched battle would certainly result. The next day the two factions held separate conventions, and each put its own ticket into the field, thus apparently assuring success for the Whig party in the fall elections. The latter party, however, was not able to take advantage of its opportunity, and the election returns gave the Gwynne candidates a decided majority in the legislature. But Broderick was by no means put out of California politics by this defeat. With a persistency and shrewdness seldom equaled, he continued his struggle for the state's mastery, and after throwing the legislature of 1855 into a deadlock over the senatorial election, he succeeded in re-establishing his control over much of the party machinery throughout the state. The continued schism in the ranks of the Democrats was largely responsible, however, for the victory of the Know-Nothing Party in the election of 1856. But this victory left Broderick in a much stronger position when the triumph of the Know-Nothings came to an end in the following year. In the legislative session of 1857, the senatorial election was again the absorbing issue. In this contest, Broderick proved strong enough not only to secure his own election, but in some degree to dictate to the legislature the choice of his colleague. For Broderick's unquestioned authority forced Gwynne into a compromise with his formal rival that might be well called the bargain and corruption episode of California politics. Under the terms of this agreement, which was arranged in a secret interview between Gwynne and Broderick personally, the latter undertook to secure for Gwynne the election to the United States Senate, and Gwynne, on his part, pledged himself to turn over to Broderick his monopoly of federal patronage in the state. In previous years, this has been Gwynne's chief political asset and a prize greatly sought after by his rival. The first provision of the compromise was successfully carried out. Despite universal astonishment, much chagrin, and vigorous denunciation of the bargain, Gwynne accepted the senatorial election from Broderick's hands, and even went so far as to publish in the newspapers a formal renunciation of any part of the federal patronage. The question of appointments to federal office in California, however, was not thus easily disposed of for President Buchanan did not take kindly to Broderick or his recommendations and filled various important positions in California with men to whom the new senator from the coast was opposed. Coupled with this issue of the federal patronage was Broderick's opposition to Buchanan's course in the heated controversy over the slavery issue in Kansas. Broderick vigorously opposed the Lecompton Constitution, to which Buchanan had definitely committed himself, so that the breach between the President and Broderick was still further widened. As an upshot of the situation, Broderick returned to California in 1859, out of favor with the administration and unable to reward his followers with the federal appointments to which they had so confidently looked forward. Gwynne's return to the state a few months later was the signal for a renewal of the old feud to which the bargain of unsavory reputation was supposed to have made an end. The quarrel was pursued on either side with bitter vindictiveness. Each man besmirched his own reputation in order to injure that of his opponent. But public opinion, strangely callous to these open confessions of corruption, failed to drive either of the guilty senators out of politics.
It was not long, however, before Broderick's career came to a tragic close. As a result of certain charges made by Broderick against Judge David S. Terry of the State Supreme Court, one of Gwynne's staunchest supporters, the latter resigned his position and challenged Broderick to a duel. The challenge was accepted, and the two men met on the morning of September 13, 1859, in a little valley in the hills of Marin County, not far from San Francisco. The weapons chosen were dueling pistols, and the distance, 30 paces. Both men were known to be excellent shots. Broderick had participated in at least two similar encounters in early stages of his career, but at this time his health was undermined and his nerves badly upset by the long-continued strain of the campaign through which he had just passed. Consequently, he was severely handicapped in the duel and fell an easy victim to Terry's well-directed aim. Broderick's own shot, though fired first, entered the ground barely nine feet from where he stood. The death of Broderick, in some respects like that of Hamilton at the hands of Burr, aroused public opinion as the man himself had never succeeded in doing while alive. Though Terry escaped any legal consequences of his act, his name has not escaped the infamy, which justly or unjustly, it incurred because of Broderick's death. More important still, at least from the political standpoint, the death of Broderick reacted disastrously upon Gwynne. The breach between the two wings of the Democratic Party was now too wide for any possible reconciliation, and as Broderick's followers had all along opposed Buchanan's policy in Kansas, most of them joined with a newly formed Republican organization to bring about the overthrow of the long-continued Democratic domination of the state. This occurred in the election of 1860. In California, as in other states, the campaign of that year was complicated by the confused condition of federal politics. The Democratic Party, divided between the Douglas and Breckinridge factions, with many of the former adherents also voting for Lincoln or Bell, could not stand against the growing power of the Republicans, and the four electoral votes of the state went for Lincoln. With the approach of the Civil War, a critical situation arose in California. The isolated position of the state and the lack of close political or economic ties to bind it to the rest of the nation created a feeling of indifference among most of the northern sympathizers regarding the outcome of the great contest in which the national government was involved. A numerous foreign element in the population further accentuated this attitude of aloofness. On the other hand, there was a large and influential body of citizens of southern birth and sympathies that actively worked to bring about the secession of California from the Union. It was not expected, nor even desired by this party, however, that the state should formally join the Richmond Confederacy, but they hoped, by reviving the old plan of a Pacific Republic, to weaken the North through the withdrawal of California's important financial and moral support. The Southern sympathizers also looked to see the new republic serve as a source of supplies for the confederacy and it was expected that privateersmen would outfit along the coast for attacks upon union merchantmen more important still the plan promised to divert the badly needed silver and gold bullion of the california and nevada mines to the southern states the plans of the confederate supporters were not defeated without the most vigorous efforts by a few of the state's loyal citizens 
the union of many of the Douglas Democrats with the Republicans broke the political power of the chivalry or Gwynne faction, and so took most of the state offices out of the hands of the Southern sympathizers. The fealty of the federal troops stationed in California was also assured when President Lincoln superseded Albert Sidney Johnston, then in command of the Pacific Division of the United States Army, by General Edwin V. Sumner. But the real burden of keeping the state true to the government fell upon a relatively few Union men whose intense earnestness and loyalty were largely instrumental in arousing public opinion against the secession movement. San Francisco was the headquarters of this Union group. Here, great mass meetings were held and a secret organization formed known as the Home Guard to prevent secession. Thomas Starr King, apostle of the Union cause, toured the state in a remarkably effective campaign to arouse the spirit of loyalty. The state legislature pledged its support to the Lincoln government. Thousands of volunteers enlisted in the state militia for home defense. Money was freely raised by public and private subscription to meet the state's wartime obligations. More than a million dollars were voluntarily contributed to the work of the Sanitary Commission. Finally, some 15,000 men were enrolled from the state in various branches of the Union Army. Despite such efforts, however, the Northern supporters could not wholly undo the work of their opponents. Many Southerners, among whom the most conspicuous was Albert Sidney Johnston, made their way back to the theater of war to join the armies of the Confederacy. Senator Gwynne, who had come to California shortly after Lincoln's inauguration, proffered his services to the Richmond government and sailed for Havana by way of Panama. After numerous adventures and some months of confinement in a Union prison, he finally reached Mississippi. Afterwards, he represented the Davis administration at the French court. More than one vessel, ostensibly fitted out for Mexican or South American ports, slipped away from California waters to prey upon Union commerce in the Pacific. In certain parts of the state, notably at Visalia and other cities of the San Joaquin, at Sonoma, and in the Santa Clara Valley, the secessionist feeling was far stronger than Union sympathy. In certain of these communities, the newspapers boldly championed the Southern cause, Confederate flags were everywhere in evidence, and military companies were organized to offset the efforts of Union sympathizers. Guerrilla bands, operating under the guise of Southern irregulars, likewise interfered somewhat with the shipment of bullion through the mountains and caused some loss of property to the Northern supporters. The whole air, indeed, during the four years of war, was full of the plots of Southern adherents to overthrow or injure Union influence. Many of these were too fantastic ever to succeed, but the isolation of the state and the indifference of the public mind made the situation one of real danger even as late as 1864. Aside from the issue of secession and the change from democratic to republican control, the politics of California during the Civil War period showed no material change. Some measures of local significance were passed by the legislature, and various laws which profoundly affected the state were enacted by Congress. From the standpoint of public morality, however, the government of California underwent but little change from the low level to which it had fallen during the early 50s. Professional politics and public indifference still prevented any radical departure from the accepted policy 
of turning a public trust to private gain. End of chapter 23